Welcome to Crush Disappointment. In this episode, I'm talking to Annie about her crush on the 1986 film Stand By Me. Uh, in particular, originally Chris Chambers as portrayed by River Phoenix, and then Ace as portrayed by Kiefer Sutherland, although we don't really touch on those two people that much. Um, nor are there many quotes in this episode. I think there's only one quote, and it's from the movie. And then I cut out the conversation that came from it because it was about social media, something that I've I've talked about before in an, in an equally dull way, and then I also say about how having you could have a I don't know, a sort of not important relationship with someone you play squash with occasionally. Um, the person I used to sp- play squash occasionally with is uh, one of my best friends. So um, just I mean I ho- I would hope that they would know that that I, it wasn't an attack on them, but um, just thought I would say that just to make sh- to make sure that that's not how that came across. Um, also, two other big issues that I come out of breath. Uh, two other big issues are that I say at the end, in the last few sentences, the last two sentences, I say, dears, instead of dear, as in the plural of dear. And then I say, recorded for prosperity, rather than posterity. And then I Google that, and posterity actually means future generations. Did everyone know that? I don't know, I didn't know that. Um, also, uh, I mean, for quite a while now, I've I've increased the volume of these episodes but to the point where now the crush sound is quiet because that's already on max. So now it sounds quite weak. So I don't know if that still sounds weak, what you're about to hear. That means I have, I've not been able to fix it. But if anyone knows how to fix it, let me know. Um, here's the crush. I'm the kind of weird, and I think you probably know this actually, who watches a film over and over and over again. So I think I watched it every night for about two years. maybe not every night but like definitely a good amount of nights per week for about two years because i just loved it so much they took me to a happy place so what are you getting out of it if you're just watching it every night what what are you getting out of it that you wouldn't get out of watching something different i think okay so there's a few things so firstly river phoenix okay obviously i realized at that age i was like okay yeah cool i like this guy he's he's cool then I was like, I wanted to be friends with them all because they seemed like they were, maybe I was just making up for not having those friends. <laughs> maybe they were my friends. Um, but I just, they, I wanted to be friends with them because I thought they seemed like a pretty fun gang of kids. I liked the soundtrack. It was, it's quite a jolly soundtrack. And I loved the sense of freedom of them. I think it was sort of an idealistic thing for me. I like the fact that they could just travel everywhere. And I think that watching it every night, I could, it would give me, (laughs) I don't even know. It sounds so weird. So I don't know if anyone else ever did this, (laughs) like watch something this much. Did you ever, have you ever watched a movie over and over again? Yeah, I feel like when you're little, you have like a few films on rotation. I wouldn't have said that I would have gone for the same film constantly. I'd have probably mixed it up, but there'd been a, certainly a few that I would have rotated. I don't think I mixed it up with anything. I might have done. But it was, I think it just made me, I saw something different in it quite a lot. I quite liked, there's something really comforting about knowing what happens next. It's like, even to this day, I don't really mind spoilers. And people always say, oh, that's not why you should watch something like, it's intended for you to see it without knowing what happens. But I don't mind spoilers because it's comforting knowing what happens, especially if it's scary, which Stand By Me obviously isn't scary. 
I don't know if that's like that's not really a good enough reason to watch something over and over again. I mean, it's pretty intense, isn't it, to watch it every... It probably wasn't every night. <laughs> Let's say like four times a week. For how long? Genuinely, I think probably for a year, maybe two years. And then, and then sporadically thereafter. I think I can probably quote the entire film from start to finish. I can definitely not like sitting... If you said to me now... I know what the first line is, more or less. But if you said to me now, go through the whole movie, scene by scene, I could have a pretty good stab at it. And if I watched it, I could say every line along with it, more or less. And w- were you watching it with your brother or were you watching it by yourself? No, no, it's just on my own. <laughs> <laughs> I had, it must have been on VHS because I, I, had, a, I had like one of those really tiny grey TV VHS players in my room and... I think I must have just watched it on that. It was usually like, a go- to be fair, okay, it's not like I sat down and did nothing else but watched the movie, riveted and like completely hooked on it every time I watched it. It was usually when I was going to sleep. Does that make it better? It was either that or a Harry Potter tape read by Stephen Fry. But wait, is it how, did you say you were like 10? Uh, yeah, I think I must have been about 10, yeah. So it's a, like a 15 certificate. Yeah, my brother was really irresponsible. He also gave me The Exorcist to watch. <laughs> okay. So standby means nothing compared to this. Yeah, no, no. Actually, no. That, I was a bit older when he gave me that. Okay. But were you aware of it being... Did it feel adult? Were you aware of... Because there's quite a lot of swearing in it. Is there? The kids are always swearing at each other. I'm very desensitised, clearly. Um, well, I mean, okay. So I guess swearing wasn't re... Is it a 15? Yeah. Holy crap didn't know that um i guess swearing was never really like taboo it was always in in art in my house it was always like people might be offended by this so don't like be obviously be sensitive to other people but my parents didn't censor themselves around me so I, that wasn't it wasn't like a that wasn't a bad thing for me um i think i felt um the characters were really well drawn even at that age and i obviously wouldn't have been able to articulate that but obviously they resonated with me on a in a deeper way than like another movie might have done. And I, you know, if you'd have asked me when I was 10 why I liked it, I would have wouldn't have said because the characters resonated with me on an emotional level. But I would have, I would have probably said something like, um, I found, like, I found it really sad when Chris Chambers is obviously a really good kid and he just can't shake his family's reputation and they just assume that he's bad and he, he's so he's so let down by a grown-up it's one of the most heartbreaking things when he's let down by that grown-up when he tries to return the milk money and I think even you know when I was 10 I was like this there's a strong sense of injustice here like that's not that's so unfair and that's so mean and that must that must be awful for him to feel that mm-hmm. so I guess I guess I thought the characters were more interesting than like your average kids film Having said, it's not a kids' film, is it? Because it's a 15. <laughs> I always thought it was a kids' film, honestly. So if you're um, 10 and they're, I think the character's supposed to be about 12, but maybe the actors were slightly older. But like, were you seeing them as like your peers or did you see them as being like slightly more adult? Like they're, they're smoking and playing cards at the beginning. Like, was, did, they, did they seem cool to you? Like, how did you associate with them? Definitely seemed cool to me, yeah. Um... I don't know why I, I would have known, but I I knew that um, 
because the, the the kids in it were different ages in real life. So I think River Phoenix was the oldest. I think he was 14 at the time of filming, maybe. So it was always like that they were, they did seem older to me. But I would say that it, oh my God, I sound like such a weirdo. I would say that them smoking in that movie definitely contributed to why I started smoking. <laughs> <laughs> like four years later. I was about 14 when I started smoking and I only did it because I thought it looked so freaking cool. And I'm pretty sure I only thought it looked really cool because they did it in Stand By Me. So have that, Hollywood. <laughs> I, I can't remember what the what they used, but I saw, I saw I read the director was like anti-smoking. And so the kids were smoking like they were. It, it wasn't cigarettes. It was something else. What, what was it? Uh, Weed. I'm not sure. Just go straight to the hard stuff. <laughs> but it's interesting if, if, if it's um, if he was anti-smoking, so obviously didn't want the kids smoking while shooting it but, the, but he still shot it in a way where it's they, they did make it cool especially to kids and like um the whole thing where uh chris chambers when he he's introduced he's got the cigarette packet like rolled up in his sleeve i'm sure that's like a, a brando james dean type thing so they're really positioning it as like a cool activity the the cigarette up the sleeve thing the mm-hmm. cigarette packet in the sleeve thing was so sexy to me um um Kiefer Sutherland as Ace so I think as I got older I fancied him a lot I don't know what that says about me as a person because he's an absolute disgrace but I didn't obviously I didn't fancy his character but it was I think it was the rolled up sleeves with like yeah the 50s look is good yeah I mean Kiefer Sutherland was probably my favorite part of the film he's so good at it he's so good isn't he See, it wasn't long after that or before that, but he did The Lost Boys, where he played a sexy 80s vampire, you know? 50s bad boy, sexy 80s vampire, and then he did some crap. So, um, I guess if you're saying that you wanted to imitate them in terms of them smoking, were there other ways in which you wanted to be like them? Did you like hang out in a treehouse? Did you want to go on journeys? Yes, yes I didn't hang out in a treehouse because I didn't have a treehouse. But if I'd have had a treehouse, I would have probably been in seventh heaven. I think there was, it is that notion of the freedom to travel. I think it was, I think they say in the movie, it's like 30 miles or something. And just the idea of being able to just set off and do that and walk across the countryside was the most appealing thing to me. And that was something that I really, really always wanted to do. And actually, there was this really weird thing that I used to do because my grandparents were in Norfolk. Throughout, they lived in Norfolk, they still do. But um, we used to travel up and see them regularly. And one of the things I would always picture when traveling to Norfolk was, I don't know why I added a horse into the mix. <laughs> I threw a horse in. But I always pictured just horse riding across the, the open fields. And thinking that must be the most amazing thing to do, to just like forget everything else and just go wherever you possibly could. There's a, oh, there's a path down a forest, go down there and see what that's like. Oh, there's a thing here, go down there and see what that's like. I think it represented a, yeah, just like a freedom that I guess you don't really have as a kid. So if if you weren't going on adventures to try and find dead bodies, do you recall what you were doing? Sitting in a cafe smoking. (laughs) (laughs) I I took the really really important parts of the movie and ran with those bits, you know. In a cafe? Yeah, because I was at the age where smoking was still legal inside. 
Uh-huh. It changed. So annoyingly, it annoyingly, I don't speak <laughs> anymore, so I don't care. But it the law changed just as I became old enough to smoke inside. So, or to, sorry, to legally smoke. So the law was, okay, so you had to be 16 to smoke at that time. Um, and, and you could smoke inside, right? Mm-hmm. As I turned 16, they made the smoking age 18 and you couldn't smoke inside anymore. One of those things happens. I don't know when it was. Then, so then there's no situation where you would have been allowed to smoke in the cafe. Oh no, I was never allowed, but I was doing it anyway. Well, I guess that's part of the part of the the figure. Yeah, no. but it was only me. Like I would take, I would go with some friends, and we'd go into the cafe, and they'd be like, "Smoking, please." Also, like the cafe, we went. It was like I don't know, a greasy spoon somewhere. Um, I don't. I guess you had to ask for smoking area, or we just went to the smoking area. I didn't even drink coffee, so I ordered like a diet coke or a coke, or I done like a a Lucas Aid or something, and then just sat there and smoked a couple of fags and then left. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I thought I was doing. And then none of my friends were smoking. It was just me. But no one questioned. If you're 14, I wasn't buying cigarettes in the store. So they're not going to be like, put that cigarette out because you're underage. No one does that. Maybe they do nowadays. I don't know. I mean, they definitely would do nowadays. Would they? Would they say, <laughs> what, if you're inside. in a cafe? <laughs> yeah. But not because you're underage. because you're smoking in a cafe. <laughs> um, yeah, I used to go to the pub and smoke as well. It was, God, it was lovely. So if your friends weren't smoking, so it's not the, the standard story that we were always told, which is to be wary of peer pressure. So <laughs> uh, so it, did it just begin one day when you, you'd watch Stand By Me and you were like, right, I need to go to that dodgy bloke who sells cigarettes to kids? Um, I, I can't even, I do remember my first cigarette. I was going to say I can't even remember my first cigarette, but I really do. So my mum smoked. But interestingly, that always made it much less glamorous for me because that was something that she did and it was like, it didn't bother me, you know, whatever. Um, It didn't make, that had no impact on me whatsoever. Her smoking made me neither want to smoke nor not want to smoke. But I do remember, I guess it was because I watched Down By Me and because they were smoking in it. And I guess there were other movies where people were smoking and I thought it looked cool. So I stole one of her cigarettes. I went to stay with my dad went into the garden, lit the fag, didn't know what I was doing, obviously, Uh, didn't like it, was on my own. So God knows why I even did it. I was like, I just want to try it. Um, Went home to my mum, who obviously could smell it on my coat. I was like, have you been smoking? And I was like, no, of course not. Where would I, where would I have got a cigarette from? But she knew. And then I guess from there, I just bought fags. I was quite, I was quite an old looking 14 year old, so I could buy them from this, from the corner shop and whatever. And, um, then one day she found them in my bag when I was, when I was probably about, yeah, like like 14 or 15, whatever. And she, (laughs) I actually think this is genius parenting. Instead of confronting me about it and saying you're smoking and you shouldn't be like, it's, you shouldn't do this. She just smoked them. <laughs> <laughs> so she just took the fags out of my bag and smoked them. And then one day when we were like hanging out or whatever, she was like, so have you started smoking then? And obviously at that point I knew because I'd been to my bag to get the cigarettes and they weren't there. I knew she'd taken them. So I had to make a decision whether I was going to lie to my mum's face or admit it and see what the consequences were. My mum's an extremely reasonable human. And if I'd have said to her, yeah, I... I um I've been smoking she would have probably just been like okay I, I really don't think you should and we'd have talked about it and like you know 
I'd have, I, at that point, maybe I would have stopped. But what happened was, oh God, I hope my mother never listens to this, but I, actually she knows, we've talked about this loads since and we laugh about it, um, but I don't know if she knows the extent to which I lied because I was just like, <laughs> oh, um, and then I think I, I decided in my head it was better not to deny it because I knew she knew about them. So I thought I would tell her that I was just holding them for a friend, <laughs> which I feel like is the classic, the classic excuse, right? Oh yeah, no. Um, but I, I did have some in my bag actually, because they were, they were my friends. And I can't remember if I said to her, did you smoke them? Because she's going to be really annoyed. I'm not quite sure how far we got with it, but I feel like that's the level to which I was committed to the lie. And then I didn't smoke, to be fair, I didn't smoke for quite a while after that incident. So I know with the, the, we're talking about Stand By Me, but that was, <laughs> if, if you're, none of your friends are smoking. No. Your mum smokes, that's a sort of a... Just whatever, by the by. Yeah. yeah. So it's not all just <laughs> Chris <laughs> from Stand By Me that makes you want to smoke. Is it, or is it, what is it, what is, what was the appeal to a 14 year old addict? I guess, I guess, Okay. So I'm going to, I mean, Stand By Me obviously had this impact, right? So even if it didn't have a direct correlation, it would have planted a seed. So no, because actually they, they smoke in it, but not that much, right? Like they have, they're smoking at the beginning. They smoke when they're camping. And then obviously Ace smokes quite a lot as well. Keeper smokes a lot. But I would say that like them smoking isn't, Necess- oh, because he says he hawked, he hawked them from his old man's dresser. Oh, no, that was the gun and the bullets. Anyway, whatever. Told you I can say the quotes. Just in re- reference to the wrong things. <laughs> no, yeah. That's really embarrassing. Um, but I guess also there was that sense of rebellion. And everyone sort of pushes things, right? And like rebels a bit. But I was so terrified of being in trouble and so scared of doing anything wrong I think that was kind of the one thing that I knew that I could probably do and not be severely told off for because I could do it fairly secretly and I wasn't hurting anyone else you know because a lot of the other rebellious stuff people might have stolen I never did that because I thought at the end of the day that's not going to that's more like to hurt other people than it is me. So you just started smoking and wearing 1950s type clothes? <laughs> yeah, rolling up my sleeves. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess that was, that's, that was my rebellion, I suppose. Would you say that your friendship group at school, or I don't know if those changed, like at any point was, had similar dynamics to those in Stand By Me or completely different? Or how do you feel about that? I was very lucky with my friendship group at school because we were all we were all very supportive of each other. So that I suppose was a similarity. Like I felt like they were my fans and I was fans of them, you know. Um so I think that was in that sense it was really great. I was very lucky with my friends at school for sure. Um I think like we I never I never quite captured the sense of adventure with my friendship group. That I I still to this day haven't, which is why I frequently ask people to do things like ghost hunting <laughs> or have wrestling parties. That's not stand by me, but you know, it's adventurous, isn't it? 
or like run around in the forest in the middle of the night for no reason. So I think maybe I'm always seeking that level of kind of spontaneity because they're like, let's just go do it. So maybe that never happened. But the like the, the strong camaraderie, for sure, I had that. So there's the, the adult Gordy? Yeah. Gordon, when he's older, isn't he? Gordy the Chance. Gordy the Chance! So when he's writing the story when he's older, yeah. he says, he, well, he writes, I never had any friends later on like the ones I had when I was 12. Jesus does anyone. Yeah. And like I was thinking about it. And I couldn't think of an exception of someone from the last 10, well, maybe not quite 10 years, maybe seven years, who's a friend who I didn't meet either through work, um, friends of friends, or them being a spouse of a friend. Like a new person? Yeah. How else would you meet people? Well, <laughs> there's got to be other ways <laughs> to meet people. You can only be friends with people who are dating your friends. Um, or people you work with. Um, and also, I should have said people who are dating my friends rather than referring to them as spouse. Is spouse a word that people use a lot? Um, are they, well, are they spouses? What is, is a spouse just... I thought it was, spouse was like a, a married partner. Oh, in my head it was less formal than that. I, I, I don't know. I'd be interested to know the definition of that. Spouse is a significant other in a married civil union or common law marriage. Yeah, I've completely messed that up. So do all your friends have spouses? <laughs> no, very few of my friends have spouses. And it's actually, it's, it's only at the point that they get married that I realise that it's, it's worth me becoming their friend because then it's kind of, it's a bit of a commitment that they've taken. That's when you make the effort. Yeah, so I stand by my comment. I only make friends with my friends' spouses. The, the wedding is the audition for them to be your friends. Yeah, because it's like my friend has put in the legwork of getting to know them over. Spe- and I, I them trust okay, my f- yeah. Yeah, so it's sort of like now it's, you've put in that... Y- those few years maybe of work so now I know you're worth my time <laughs> have you ever had a situation where you've started to like one of the spouses more than the original friend because that might be awkward that would be awkward wouldn't it mm. I've got I definitely got um spouse friends who I will stay <laughs> friends with if they broke up I'm trying to think of a good word for spouse friends that's like frouses spreads but also it's it's yeah, but then that's would you be would it be okay for you to stay friends with your with your frouses if you're friends and they broke up? Um, don't know. I'm rolling with frouses, by the way. You haven't you haven't made any comment on my invention that I'm rolling with it. Um, I feel like it wasn't worth. <laughs> I noticed. Upon. Maybe that's why I'm rolling with it. Um, yeah. What what would happen if you if you? I guess it would depend on the nature of the breakup, wouldn't it? Yeah, I don't think there's a uniform rule equally between the different friend spouses because... You make them fight to the death. (laughs) You pitch them against each other in a Hunger Games style game in which the winner stays your friend. Exactly. But that feels like not a great way. Not the the death match, obviously that's not great. (laughs) But the the way of um, having your friendships based on... Because work, I, I feel like, is a shit way to do that because then you've... It just can create issues, and then also I don't, I don't think that creates issues. No. Why, if you like start dating someone at work, maybe, but why being friends with someone? Why is that creating issues? Uh, I mean, this is going to sound very robotic, but is it not the point where 
even with like with your friends, you get pissed off with them, and it's just like then you've got to bring that energy to work. It's just that's on you, mate. I'm not saying like not be friendly with people at work or be friends, but maybe for them to be your only new friends. Maybe that's the issue that I've got with it. Is is weird. So you want to go out and meet new friends? Is what you're saying? I mean, I've been speed dating. Speed dating? That's romantic friends, though, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but most of them aren't. Friends. Me- <laughs> what you got? Friends. Very good. He's getting on the word train. Um, yeah, but that most of them aren't romantic because inevitably you're not going to have a connection with like 20 people are you a romantic connection but you from that but from that you might meet people who are really cool and you might want to be friends with them it just feels a bit insincere to go in without the intention of any romance like it's, i feel like if you go in and you're looking for romance and you find friendship that's fair enough but to be looking for friendship under the sort of subterfuge of <laughs> no it's not that you're looking for friendship it's that you end up with friendship because the frisson isn't there yeah, but I wouldn't be going to the, for me as an individual, I wouldn't be going to these things <laughs> looking for romance. I see. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it would be, it would be deceitful of you to even be there in the first place, of course. Yeah. 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 No, you're right. <laughs> Which isn't the foundation of a strong friendship deceit. You're right. That would not work. Um, I feel like that was because I came out of that with absolutely no romantic potential whatsoever. But I came out of it thinking these were really interesting people, especially the guy who said... I love numbers. I thought, mm, we probably wouldn't work. <laughs> numbers are my least favourite form of... In what, in what context did you say that? Um, I, um, he Genuinely, he sat down and he said, hello, I'm Jeremy. Um, he, he ran, I think he was an estate agent maybe, or like did something with house housing. And he said, I just really love numbers. It's a numbers game and I just really love it. <laughs> um, so I wasn't interested, unfortunately. Poor Jeremy. Poor Jeremy. He, but he was very interesting to talk to, undoubtedly. And have you, have you remained friends with Jeremy? I have not remained friends with Jeremy. <laughs> well, then, then why would you bring it up? <laughs> okay. okay, so because lots of things went through my head. Okay, so firstly... Yes, how I'm trying to think how I've met my friends over the last 10 years also. And without an institution, it's very hard. I concur. But also, friends are really hard work. And I don't mean that in a mean way. But I mean that in like a, if you have, if you have a wide circle of friends, it's exhausting trying to give your friends what they deserve in terms of, time and commitment to the friendship sometimes I feel like I'm I'm failing as a friend so I don't want more friends because I already struggle to be a good friend to the friends I have do you feel like that uh no I, I put I give every one of my friends the exact amount of time they require zero <laughs> zero uh, time <laughs> um but it, I guess there's there's different obviously there's different levels of it isn't there there's like that one friend who you meet up semi-regularly and you, you, you don't know you play squash and you really get on playing squash but you've got nothing else in common that's true but then what happens if you have a friend who wants loads from you but you don't but also like, okay so what happens if you have a friend who's really really who really takes a lot but never really gives get rid no because <laughs> that's that's harsh <laughs> there's no reciprocity yeah well, there's minimal recipro- 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 
that's another one. The, 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 actually, the only reason why I said it is because I only recently learned how to say it, and that's why I wanted to force oh, it into conversation. You, that was sneaky. Um, but I guess, I guess, how else would you meet people? Um, I, I think you and I have slightly different approaches to other other humans in in the public sphere. <laughs> This sounds like a, a sugar-coated insult. <laughs> it's not. It's really not. It's not. It's not. I think. See, I think you're more normal in that you. I think you're more normal. I think I'm possibly a bit more abnormal and probably significantly more irritating to everybody else. End of sentence. You've, you, there's nothing wrong. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that sentence at all. That I'm significantly irritating to everyone else. Yeah. And abnormal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I mean, that is. I would say that's a pretty fair summary. But but in the sense that I'm going to elaborate for the aforementioned reasons. I mean, there's no need, but if you must. <laughs> I shall. Um, I will walk into a room and f- fairly quickly make a fool of myself and establish myself as somebody who will probably want to talk to everybody just because I like to talk and I like to meet people and I, li- I like to hear lots of different things but I do think that's probably very irritating for everybody else I, like I'm like oh this is like wow this is so cool like I'm gonna meet loads of really interesting people and everyone's like who is this really annoying strange person I called I met someone the other day and I uh, and I I, ca- I called the coronavirus jab that I'd had my jibby jab to their face having met them for five minutes I mean what does what does that person now think of me I actually told them I'd been microchipped. <laughs> and then I had to qualify that. And to do so, I said, I've had a chippy jab. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, no, that's, that friendship's done. Isn't it? <laughs> I, w- I would disagree with your analysis, though. I would say, um, like, I remember being in a group with you and you, you're, you being affable. And, like, it sort of takes a, it makes it easier for me as someone who won't initiate as soon as someone initiates i feel like i can be quite comfortable so you're nice saying that you were happy that i spoke at you yes okay great <laughs> Woo-hoo. <laughs> and then it got very wearing very quickly no doubt oh i mean yeah within the next five minutes but i would say it as a uh i, I, I don't know, obviously people are different but i would say as on the whole i don't think that's a, a characteristic that people don't like i think people genuinely like people who come and talk to them like when they say they had the jibby jab yeah no no one would like that <laughs> i guess kind of i don't know if this is the opposite to what you to you being good at um speaking to new people but i had so again a through a friend's spouse it was a friend's Frouse. girlfriend's birthday i remember chatting to one of her friends for like a significant period say that again a friend's girlfriend's birthday and yeah you were chatting to the friend's girlfriend the friend's girlfriend's friend. The friend's girlfriend's friend, sure. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah. then um, got on really well. And then there was another event uh, I don't know, a few months later. I was like, oh, it's, it actually felt like oh, this could be like a friendship. And then she, it was at a restaurant place and she was, um, she came over and I thought she was coming in for like a kiss on the cheek, which I'm never good at. I never quite oh get God. these things right. Yeah. And then she sort of, uh, so I'm sitting down and she puts her head to the side of my head and then. Um, I've, so I turn my face towards her oh my God. and then I realise that she's just showing me, showing me the menu so then I'm thinking well I can't I can't, I can't now kiss her on the cheek because that would be, I've gone way too forward so, but then I think I can't backtrack, I can't make it look like I've messed up so I kept my head like in her hair 
for way too long. <laughs> like just thinking, I'm like thinking this isn't going well. Oh my God. And then since then, we've not spoken. <laughs> you see, so at that moment, I guess this is quite a good example of how you and I differ. I would have fully announced the awkward situation. So I would have just said it for what it was. I'd have gone. So wait, did she? So she was working there. So she, she like it was like a pop up that she'd put on for like her friends. Mm, that's cool. And like there was like other people invited, so that's why we were there. So, so, but so was she saying hello to you as well as showing you the menu? I think so. Yeah. Okay. So at that point, I would have gone. Oh, I thought you were going in for a kiss. Ha! Give us one anyway. <laughs> I don't know. I just said something dumb like that. <laughs> Yeah, see, it wasn't my vibe. I just... Um, like bright red, probably, and... Yeah. Kept your head in her hair. <laughs> yeah, that evening was ruined. She was probably just like, why was he sniffing my hair? What a weirdo. But, but I mean, that also, I mean, that's... For her, from her perspective, that's not a nice way to start the day that you're, you've started your taverna. I mean, that's not fun. So it would have been better to have said something. Yeah, but she, you weren't a complete stranger, so she, she knew you. I always find that when you, so kind of interestingly with that about meeting people, so and that could have been the start of a friendship which you killed dead yeah. by sniffing her hair. Um, I didn't sniff her I hair. I know, but that's what it looked, probably looked like. I heard the story. <laughs> um, but one of the things that I think that I, I'm convinced that when I've met somebody once before, that they're not going to know who I am when they see me again. So I, the thing that I find most awkward and interestingly, so I said, oh, I would have made, I'd have made light about that interaction. I can't do that if I see somebody in real life for the second time, having met them at a friend's house or whatever. I just pretend like I don't know who they are because I go, well, they're not going to know who I am. And if I speak to them, they're going to go, who the hell are you? Why are you talking to me? I obviously remember them, but they're not going to remember me. Yep. So that's, that's an awkward situation that I cannot get out of frequently although I, I um the other day somebody recognized me in the street and it was really sweet because she sort of stopped me and said oh my god Annie and I and it was someone I haven't seen since 2016 who I met maybe four times and I was like oh that's so nice and then I felt then I was like I know what their name is but then I was like what if it's not that you know when you have that self-doubt creeping in and then so then you just don't say the name and then you're like, maybe they thought that I'd forgotten them, but I knew who they were. Oh my God, it was awful. But also really nice. Um, so you said that you watched the film regularly for like a, certainly a year period, and then sporadically since then. In these sporadic times, how has your relationship with the film changed, especially as you've gotten closer to being the age of the adult writer rather than the children? Oh gosh. Um... I think it has such a strong nostalgic significance to me that now it is just pure love for taking me back to that feeling that I had when I watched it when I was a kid. So it was on, they played it at the BFI and my mum knows how much I love the film and booked tickets and took me and I think I cried throughout most of it because I was just so happy to be there <laughs> and I'd never seen it on the big screen either so I was like, very emotional. Okay, I didn't cry the whole way through the film, but there were some like very, you know, poignant moments, like the beginning when he sees that Chris is dead. You know, I think that's obviously not. It's sad and stuff. Um, and also like at the end when he disappears, oh, so emotional. Um, 
yeah, so I think I just was like, and, and it, I think I had a smile on my, it was happy tears. Like I had a smile on my face the whole way through. So I don't think that I've got anything insightful to say about that really, except for the fact that it just makes me feel really happy for the good memories that it holds. It's definitely, it's like my, it's my happy film. It's my, if I feel really shit, I know that I can always watch Down By Me and it will make me feel better. But if you, if you were, I mean, I know you said happy tears, but like crying, that's a, like an intense response. Is it? Or am I just the loser? <laughs> or or is, is that a common response you have to any film that is? I, so I try really hard not to cry at movies. I have a really, really weird thing about crying at movies. I can't do it. I, I hate it. I will do anything in my power to not cry at movies. So most recently, the last movie that I saw at the cinema actually was Little Women um, in 2020, because obviously, you know, coronavirus. And that's obviously a really emotional movie. And they did it very well, I thought. Um, And I just, oh my God, it was awful. I don't know what's worse, crying or holding back tears. Have you ever tried to hold back tears in the cinema? No, I feel like crying in the cinema is... This might sound uh, oxymoronic, contradictory to say, but like it's, I think it's blissful and like joyful to be like to weep in the cinema. I mean, I wish I felt like that about it because I can, I can fully see how that could be the case. But for me, I feel like it will open a floodgate, and I just, I, I can't just, I can't just weep. You know, if I start crying, like I'll cry, and but then what happens is, I, because I, I wish, because it's kind of a cathartic relief, isn't it? when you when you do sort of have that physical and emotional response but what I do instead is I hold it in <laughs> so it usually comes out like in some sort of horrible sound <laughs> that is so much worse than if I'd have just sort of silently wept I end up sort of like streaming from my eyeballs and then sort of going <laughs> And spluttering and coughing and shaking and all sorts of dumb things because I'm just too weird about actually crying in the cinema, or in or like sitting in a sitting at home. If I'm with someone else, I can't cry basically at a film. But stand by me at the cinema. I so I hid that. Thankfully, I mean, when I, I wear glasses when I watch things, I so I so I made that sound like it was a really big thing that I cried at Stand by Me. I did, but it was very private. My mum sitting next to me was kind of looking at me like seeing how much I was enjoying it. And I was trying so hard not to show her that I was crying. I don't know what it is. It's weird, isn't it? So, so it, you mentioned not wanting to cry in front of people and also your mum. So is it a, a sense of, it, is it the thing of having them see you cry or is it the act in and of itself is enough that it makes you not want to do it? I don't really know. I don't know. I think I cry when I'm on my own at movies. So I guess it must be in front of other people. I think it's, I guess I'm, I guess, I've never thought about this, Matt. You're making me reach into some really, you know, inner places. (laughs) I guess what it is, sort of in a very simple manner, is that I, on the whole, am a fairly... I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a private person because I'm quite, I'm quite happy to talk about you know silly things that I've done or like my failures or my you know my joys or whatever my sadnesses I'm quite happy to say I felt really sad the other day but I suppose there's something different about articulating it to showing it and having that raw emotion 
And I suppose I just, I'm not very good. It's like, I really hate crying in public. I think I'm just not very good at having raw emotion that isn't thought about and considered. Mm-hmm. I like to think about it first and then talk about it. So I'm not, okay, that's what it is. Normally, <laughs> it's like therapy. Normally I'll have, um, I'll have an emotional response to something. Then I'll cry. So let's, if it's a sad one, I'll cry. And then I'll process it and deal with it. And then I'll talk about it with all my friends openly. But when I'm watching a movie and then, you know, that really sad thing happens in Little Women, I'm not going to ruin it for anyone who hasn't seen it. But it's really sad. So then I haven't had time to deal with that. So I have to cry because it's really sad, but I don't want to cry because I want to think about it. That doesn't make any sense either, does it? It sort of does. Yeah, I I think I sort of follow. But then if... um... I'm not ready to share the emotion until I've thought about it. Yeah, but then there's, um, how does that transfer to, I don't know, a, a, a life event? You get told, like, traumatic news. Uh, in, that, in that moment, you don't have to, like, it's, it's always a, um, an immediate uh, physical response. Like, it's, it's very rare that you have the time to analyse that sort of heavy, like, those, those larger emotions to put them into um, perspective, I guess. Um. I, I've, qu- I've got quite a good um, steely exterior. <laughs> well, no, I don't know, but I've got quite a good... I can have a good game face. Okay, so what I'm going to liken it to, I don't know if you've ever been in this situation, but you're, you're, like, you're out and you're quite drunk. And then suddenly you realise because, I don't know, your friend's not very well or you realise you have to get home or whatever it might be and you sober up immediately. There's a, there's a thing that... So like, um, I remember the first time it happened, it was I don't know, at a party at school, I think. It was definitely when I was at school and um, I was at a party and I was quite drunk. And then a friend of mine was vomiting because she'd drunk so much. And I realised that I had to look after her, which was fine. And I was more than happy to do it. But I also realised if I was going to do that, I'd need to be in a situation where I could do that well. So I, my brain just went snap into gear. And then I, and then, I mean, she was, it was like, it wasn't anything dramatic. She was like 15 and vomiting in the toilet. But it's that kind of um the same sort of thing so if i'm if i have to deal with a with a difficult situation in real life where my emotional response might be to cry my brain kicks into gear first and i deal with what needs to be dealt with then i process the emotion and then i talk about it does that make sense yeah i think that makes sense i, I can think of moments where just just when i don't have had uh, bad news and i've been out with people and i think i sort of go right that's going to the back of my mind exactly i'm dealing with this now and then i'll compartmentalize that and deal with that later yeah that's exactly it i could have just said that and it would have saved five minutes (laughs) (laughs) you get bad news you compartmentalize it and then you deal with it later yes but then but then in i guess the distinction in that situation would be you're doing that because you've got something you need to do whether that's to look after your friend or just because you're out and you don't want to make it a big deal for other people if you're in the cinema and was it Roger Ebert called called cinema like an empathy machine? Like the part of it is to get a response from you. That's what it's supposed to be doing. And for you to try and suppress <laughs> I that. Fight like that. What, yeah, what what is the what's the motivation in trying to fight that? Um I don't know. I don't like to be weak. <laughs> I don't show weakness. But it is it is a very like sort of boys don't cry type thing. Like that's people talk about how like it? boys are taught to like hold that in. 
I think, okay, so I, I can I can pinpoint the crying and a movie thing back to when I was about seven years old and I watched Forrest Gump. And all I will say is that I was a very naive and timid and like really hated anyone being upset or in trouble. Like my, I just, I, I felt that very deeply for whatever reason. And I watched Forrest Gump and I couldn't really, there you go, it's probably another example of me watching inappropriate movies <laughs> at, at an inappropriate age. Um, and I remember feeling so, so upset because I just, I, I can't even, I can't articulate why, but I felt for him. I think I had this notion that people weren't being nice to him and there seemed no reason for that. That seemed like a really... I was like, why, why isn't, why isn't it just easier for him? Why aren't people nicer to him? Why aren't people helping him? So I, I remember I cried for about two hours, almost uncontrollably. And my mum came up and found me and she was like, what is wrong with you? And I was like, I just don't understand. my And I haven't watched Forrest Gump to this day because it had that, such an impact on me. So I wonder if it's because of that, because maybe that had, that had such a, impact on me in terms of crying in movies I don't know it's a big it was a big moment <laughs> god damn you Forrest Gump god damn you it, honestly like if it's on tv now I'm like don't watch it can't do it change the channel change the channel <laughs> I panic so it was, it was your um your, your mum's response was like it's a it's a movie why you're getting upset no no she was obviously really nice and cuddled me and said <laughs> we talked about it we talked about it loads and she was very like you know supportive and and sweet so maybe that made it worse <laughs> <laughs> maybe i just needed her to be like pull yourself together <laughs> <laughs> instead of indulge me um no she was very understanding and 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 you know, she's like, let's talk about this. Like, this is important. You know, if you have this response, let's talk about why, I guess. I don't know. I think, I, I think I've told this on the podcast before, and I hate when podcasts repeat their fucking anecdotes. Repeat it, repeat it. Because I think, I think it's, it sort of applies. But um, um, so in 2011, I saw uh, Pulpit Wireless Festival with my friends. It was like my favorite band and had the, the best time ever. And it's like, I, I feel like uh, joyful, but also sort of sad and nostalgic thinking about it. And then a couple of years later, I went to see Pulp at the Royal Albert Hall and I was by myself. And they then did, uh, they sang the song Birds in Your Garden, which was my favourite Pulp song. And it was kind of like a, not a particularly big one. So I never thought I would hear them sing it or perform it. And then um, I basically just wept. Like I couldn't stop crying. And it was a, a sense of, I don't even know the word to describe like how I, I was remembering being with my friends and the joy that we all had mm -hmm. and feeling like that was like slipping away from me because I'd, we'd all gone our separate ways at that point oh my God. And, it felt, and it felt like the end of an era and it felt like I was suddenly by myself experiencing something that was so overwhelming and it was like the music that I listened to during that period and so I was wondering if I don't know if it's overstating the point but with Stand By Me, if it's if that is a film about nostalgia, it's about kids. You watched it as a kid, coming back to it as an adult. Would that? Do you think that in any way would have played into you having an emotional response to it? One thousand billion percent, absolutely. I think that's such a huge part of it because those those moments and how you the things that we see and the things that we experience 
are obviously associated with certain times in our life or uh, events or even just sort of like overarching I would describe it as um like not an aura that's the wrong word but like maybe a, maybe an emotion emotions palette like a color palette of emotion or like um I don't know so I would picture like stand by me and its impact on my childhood as quite a significant one because I spent I think it it's really weird but I do think it helped me as like when I was sort of at that age grow up a little bit but not grow up in the sense that I lost my, my I lost my childhood because it's down by me but it you know it helped formulate some thoughts and it helped put some things into perspective or it informed decisions that I made let's not talk about the smoking aspect of it and maybe focus on something a little bit more positive um like the kindness that they show each other or like the silly conversations that they have some of those things were really familiar but also yeah really significant to me so I guess that when I look back on that it's it's yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I definitely think that feeds into, I mean, I, I would say that yours sounds quite sad. <laughs> <laughs> I would say mine is, is entirely happy because mm-hmm. I don't feel sad for the time that was, I feel happy for the time that, for that, for that feeling, you know? And so the time that was, is when you're watching the film, are you remembering the times that you watched the film previously or are you remembering yourself at that age and with your friends at that age oh I my friends aren't even factored into my experience <laughs> with stand by me I I would have probably chosen stand by me over my friends no I'm joking <laughs> maybe I would have done oh god the fact that they even said that that quickly shows there's probably a grain of truth um what was the question <laughs> Um, if you're you're watching the film and you're getting sort of memories, is it are the memories um, or the images? Are they are you seeing the times that you watch Stand by Me and remembering those times, or are you remembering being twelve and doing things with your friends? I'm remembering my emotions palette. That's what I mean by that. That's a good way of describing that. So I'm not remembering necessarily a specific. I'm not remembering like oh the time that me and Bob played in the garden and pretended like we had a treehouse or. And how fun that was, or the time when I dreamt about riding horseback over the open fields. I'm remembering the whole spectrum of emotion that I had. <laughs> so when I think about watching Stand By Me as a kid, I associate it very strongly with shades of blue. Now, I know that normally shades of blue is a very bad thing or like, you know, Picasso's blue period. He wasn't very happy at that time. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but that's why I would thought. But for me, that was a really good thing. <laughs> this isn't helping at all, is it? I mean, I'm a, I, I, mean I don't visualise things in colours, so that's why I'm, I'm confused to how that, that, that works. Oh, um... But I understand that that's a difficult. If it, if you're visualizing things in colors, I imagine that's difficult to articulate because you're seeing it through <laughs> feelings, not words. Yeah, I think that's what it is. I'm seeing the whole thing, my emotions palette. But every time I say that, you frown. <laughs> Can you define it for me? What is what is an emotions palette? So, like a color palette. Yeah. But emotions. So the the thing that the artist holds in their hand with the hole in it that's got all the colors on it. Yes, except I'm thinking of it more, um, instead of it being a physical thing, I'm thinking more of like a descriptive thing. So um, so you would say, or like a tonal palette. So you might say the colour palette of 
a movie is very grey because that represents the day-to-day boring nature of the protagonist's life, right? And that's part of it. So it's the emotions palette. So you're experiencing all the emotions simultaneously that you experienced throughout that whole year during watching the film? Mm, No. (laughs) Oh, sort of. I guess so, yeah. Not maybe not all of them simultaneously, but it's it's like all of them sort of bundled into a package. And that package is kind of shades of blue in itself. And then that is like lying in a bath of that. It's like lying in a bath of shades of blue. And um, I mean, maybe I associate blue with it because the colour has kind of a weird blue sort of watercolour look on it. It's not watercolour, but it's like a pale blue part of the poster is pale blue, basically. I wonder if that's why I associate blue with it, but it's kind of more than that. Anyway, it's like lying in a bath of all the emotions that I felt when I was watching Stand By Me over that whole kind of year, two year period ongoing. Has that helped? I think so. Um, but you, so you, in comparison to my anecdote about Pulp and yours with Stand By Me, you said that mine sounded sad and yours sounded happy. To me, that to experience all those emotions at once would be overwhelming. Like that's, I feel like a pain in my chest when I got when I get nostalgic. Um, really? Yeah. A bad pain. Yeah. Even with happy memories and happy nostalgia. Yeah. Because you want, because you want that time again. Yeah. It does that only happen when you have, when when those things have come to an end. So, for example, like you went to, I don't know, you went to, to this particular area for a holiday every year in Scotland, and then that stopped when you were 14. And when you think back on that, you think about the fact that that was cut off when you were 14. Yeah, probably probably that. And then a more intense version of that would then be going to Scotland and feeling like uh, wanting to replicate maybe that experience or, ha- or realising that it had changed and it was different and what and the feeling that I was trying to grasp were, is no longer possible. So I would say the reason that I didn't have that with Stand By Me is because I never stopped watching it. So so I, I changed as I carried on watching it. So it never, the experience never ended. It just morphed into something different, which is more distant. And I now watch the film maybe once a year. So I guess I never, but basically it, it was, it was, okay, here you go. It was escapism for me. It was the ultimate escapism. So when I was feeling miserable about school or when I was feeling, I don't know, whatever else burdens the brain of a 10 year old, I would watch Stand By Me and it would take me away from everything. That makes it sound like I had a very difficult childhood. I really didn't, but 10 year olds have, you know, thoughts and sadnesses and you're starting to experience some of that stuff and you're starting to be exposed to the nastier sides of the world at that age and stand by me was like yeah my my escape is i could put that on and i would be there with them for all the hap like for all the good bits and the camaraderie and i told you they were my friends (laughs) so i think that i think that that sense of nostalgia for me isn't painful or isn't hasn't doesn't have that reaction to me because I'm really thankful for it. And I know that I won't ever try. I I will never be able to replicate what it meant to me when I was 10. 
but I don't need to because, and I don't want to even, because that had its significance then. And so like at that point in my life, it was a very big significant blob of escapism. And then imagine you take the paintbrush and drag it out and the line gets thinner and thinner and thinner. And that's where I am now. And that doesn't sound sad to you, what you just did, what you just described with a, with a, a paintbrush with the line getting thinner and thinner and thinner? N- no. Because it's bright pink. It's not. It's got no colour, the paintbrush. Because it's not associated with the same colour as my bath. Okay. <laughs> so I'm not if, drunk. Um, when, when, so when you got into the bath when you were a late teenager, was it the same colour blue as it is now? Or no, was the, no, 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 no. So it was a di- different colour or still blue? I don't know because... That's my, that was my experience watching it two years ago in the, at the BFI. And my general kind of thought and where I see it in my head and where it sits in my brain, that's what that's like now. As a teenager, I would say it was still the film that I went, because it, when you're a teenager, obviously there's all those other kind of issues that you have as a teenager. And I guess that I went back to Stand By Me as, again, my safe, my safe place. Like it was... It was, fam- again, it was that sense of like familiarity. Wow. Fam- I'm not going to say it again. Familiarity. Is that the right way to say it? Familiarity? Okay, thank you. It was that. I don't know why. Can't say that. Um, it was very familiar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll go with that. It was familiar and it was something I knew and something that I knew would make me happy. How many things do you have that is a go to happiness? Yeah, not many. Not many. Stand by me. Chocolate. Um, sunshine. That's a pretty go-to happiness. The smell of books. Mm, that's pretty good. Have you ever flicked a book? When you, when you run your fingers yeah, through it? No, I, I don't do that with my books. I recently watched a video on how to get the eye of your uh, hardback books to be nicely... Um, formed i guess so i've i've spent a, a good without exaggerating certainly 30 minutes uh opening a book from both sides to make sure that the eye was perfect what is the eye of a hardback book so where the spine is yeah and then when it's sewn to the pages yeah the bit that's sewn when you open the book opens up a bit uh-huh and if but if you if you've got a big book and you just read it from the beginning the eye will be kind of lopsided towards the front. Okay, I see. So you have to open it from the back and the front simultaneously and press down at each page individually. And did you spend half an hour on one book or all of your hardback books? Oh, one book. And you think I was weird for watching Stand By Me on repeat for a year? I had music on, I had a podcast on, oh, I was doing <laughs> something else. You don't even fold your corners down, do you? And you don't, on a, on a paperback, you don't even break the spine, do you, of the book? No. That's what. That's also the technique that I'm describing helps you not break the spine on your paperbacks. What What would happen if you lent someone a book and it came back dog-eared with a broken spine? It's not. I've never had it quite that bad, but I did have an experience where it did come back pretty bad. And they, they, to their mind, it was fine, and to most people's minds, probably fine. But to my mind, no. And they've um, they've been cut off. <laughs> yeah, they shan't be lent a book again. Are, they, are you still friends with them? Yeah, and I've got one book that I really think they would enjoy, and I keep looking at it, but it's in such good condition, and I think oh, it's just not worth it. Just buy them a new copy. No, they're not that. Not they're that not good that good. Fred. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I that's yeah. I think that's so weird because when you when you read a book without breaking the spine, you have to like peek into the middle. 
How do you read that? I have to fold a book back on itself. Because if I don't do that, I feel like I can't immerse myself in the experience of the reading. That's where you're going wrong. You shouldn't immerse yourself. You should see it purely as a... Clinical practice. <laughs> you're, you're an archivist is the way that you should look at it. Do you wear white gloves as well? If I had them, I would. In like a, a perfectly climatised room. Yeah. Air conditioned to the absolute optimum temperature. That's exactly what I did. Um, did you ever read the Stand By Me book? Yes, I did. So when did, when did you first read that? Uh, I was older. I was probably about 14. Actually, it's not a book, is it? It's a a novella, is what they call it, yeah. The body, yeah. Um, And so how was the experience of reading that compared to the book? Sorry, to the film. Um, It's it's a really good adaptation of the book. I think what struck me when I read it was, interestingly, so at that age, I obviously, um, maybe 14, maybe 15, I'm not really sure, because I knew who Stephen King was. For whatever reason, I was familiar with Stephen King's work. Um, and I remember being quite surprised that it was a Stephen King book because I was like, oh, this is so different to to most of his other work. But it was, it, I remember just reading it and going, oh my God, it's like watching the movie, but on a page, this is really cool. What, how how amazing they've done such a good adaptation. Um, and there were a few changes and there were a few differences. But at that stage, it was kind of, I was really into movies. So I think when I read it, I was more academic about my analysis so I think I was like oh it's really interesting that they chose to cut this part out or they left that bit in or so I was more impressed by the adaptation than I was attached to it emotionally I think um I had one question which I thought was really shit and I really didn't like it and I think it's a horrible question to I don't think I'd be able to answer it but the uh, the film uses lots of sort of music from the time it's set with like the 1950s sort of rock and roll uh, R&B kind of stuff uh, if if your friends had gone on an adventure, what would the soundtrack have been? Oh my god, I love that Spice Girls, definitely. Um, so quite a lot of musical theatre, specifically like rousing numbers. Um, Panic at the Disco, I write sins, not tragedies. Avril Lavigne, Skater Boy, Radiohead, Muse, um, Evanescence for good measure, Johnny Cash. Bon Jovi, absolutely. Metallica, absolutely. Just, you know, songs that make you feel really good. <laughs> and, and do you think uh, if the film had been your friendship group and it had that soundtrack, do you think it would have been as, as much of a success? Absolutely not. <laughs> it would have been a massive flop. Because I, I think I said earlier that the soundtrack for Stand By Me, I think is absolutely banging. Like the thing, I think this is the thing. If I went on an adventure on a on a trip like that, I would want it to be exactly like Stand By Me. I would want the soundtrack. I would want the train. I would want... No, I, I wouldn't... I'd draw the line at leeches. <laughs> but I would want... And I wouldn't really want the dead body at the end because that's quite traumatic. But I would like the... Yeah, definitely the soundtrack. Definitely the campfire. I'd even have Sikkim... You know, the dog chasing me out of the junkyard. I mean, you've essentially described going on a camping trip where you play 1950s music. There's not that much in there that you can If I did that, <laughs> well, that would be, that's my dream holiday then. Yeah. But that, it, you'd have to, it wouldn't just be a camping trip, like on a campsite. It would have to be wild camping. Yeah. That's my dream holiday. 
I mean, that's still very feasible. It's not like uh, me like really liking Flash Gordon and feeling like <laughs> I want to reenact Flash Gordon. It's not quite as difficult as that. You could definitely put on some like gold hot pants or whatever it is Flash Gordon wears. That's a start. Yeah, it's still, it, I feel like me wearing gold <laughs> hot pants by myself isn't going to make me relive the Flash Gordon experience. No, no, I suppose not. You'd need all the other. You'd need, um, what's his name? The man who did the winged. Brian Blessed. No, you need Brian Blessed in it. <laughs> I, but, but again, I feel like you've missed the point where even if Brian Blessed <laughs> was there, I wouldn't be able to recreate the experience of Flash Gordon. Yeah. You obviously need a better imagination. <laughs> You're right. I understand your point. Yes. You say that I need a better imagination. You can't even imagine going on a camping trip where you listen to 1950s music. No, I can, but that would be lame. I want to go on a, I want to go free camping and, you know, just sort of walk through sort of sort of knowing where you're going and just sort of seeing what happens. You know that moment when he wakes up the next day when they've been camping in the woods and he's on the train track and he sees a deer and he doesn't tell anyone about it. I just think that's so beautiful. I like that. Again, I've seen loads <laughs> of deer. All right. <laughs> don't know if, they, if you don't get them in Norfolk. <laughs> I get them in my little backyard in London. I don't, obviously. Just get, I don't even get anything in here, actually. No nature. The odd bumblebee. Um, yes, I've seen, I've seen deer in Norfolk regularly. And do you tell people about it when you see them? Yeah, usually because I'm so excited. <laughs> no, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I have a moment with the deer. Yeah. But you know, when you've seen, when you've had one moment with a deer. I don't know. I did drive through the Norfolk countryside the other day and... Um, it was sunset. It was like the beautiful. It was a beautiful sunny day, and it was the golden hour. And it's this particular road that I absolutely love driving down because it's really long, quite windy, but also like wide enough that it's not scary if you meet another car, um, which is <laughs> crucial in the countryside. Um, and I don't mean scary because it's just you and the other car. I mean scary because they drive really fast, and sometimes there's not enough space for them to get past. But uh, it was it was genuinely one of the most beautiful moments I've had in a really long time and I felt quite emotional and I did cry but I was on my own so I actually did cry <laughs> I didn't bottle it in um it was just it was just stunning and it's but what you do is so actually the why didn't he tell them about the deer I've never understood that actually now he's talking about it that was like he he said I didn't tell anyone about the deer but why he says that like it was significant that he didn't tell anyone because it was a moment of beauty that just for him Sounds good. I wanted to bottle the beauty and, and share it with everybody, which is why I tell people. But obviously when you tell them, when, when you break that story down into its parts, I drove along the road and it was really pretty. It's not a very good story, really, is it? No, but yet you felt it was worth uh, having it recorded <laughs> for prosperity. I felt like it, you needed to know about it. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um. I think that might be the note we end on. <laughs> a really great story. Well, thank you so much for your time. My absolute pleasure.